0: If you have a Bible, uh, go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Acts 2, verse 42, and we'll pick up there in a moment. Uh, We are, uh, Gabe, you could probably turn it down a little more. Uh, We are continuing in our fall series, which we started last week, uh, which is simply called Witness. Uh, Jesus calls every single one of us uh, to go into the world as his disciples and to make disciples. And he says, quote, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This is one way of summing up the mission of God, the call on our lives as disciples of Jesus. Uh, In other words, Jesus says, you will be sent out to uh, touch and transform broken people and broken cultures with the truth that I'm back from the dead and that the kingdom of God is now at hand and that the kingdom of God is available to you. It's at your fingertips. And so the question we're exploring in this series is how? How? How do we go about engaging, touching, transforming individual lives and ultimately the culture as a whole uh, with this gospel? Even as the culture seems to be less and less interested in Jesus and his kingdom. How do we go about being loving and effective witnesses who actually see others come to Christ? Uh, We'll pick up in Acts 2 verse 42. This is an account of the early church and how they did it. This is what it says. It says, They, the early church, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer, saved. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, uh, for the truth that it conveys from history, from the truth that it conveys about you and even about our future. And God, we want to be um, rooted in this word. And ultimately, God, our heart is to have the same fire that we see in the early church, a fire that consumes, that spreads, Uh, and that changes and touches and transforms uh, the broken world around us. Would you teach us uh, this morning and in the coming weeks how to do that, how to remain a vital, vibrant church that carries your fire into the world uh, in the midst of uh, all the craziness that we're living in right now. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, In Acts chapter 2, which we just read from, Uh, Jesus is back from the dead. The Holy Spirit has finally come upon the disciples, which the Jewish people had been waiting centuries, if not millennia, for. And uh, the disciples go from instantly, as the Spirit comes upon them, they go from being fearful and afraid and in hiding to being bold and empowered. Uh, Peter preaches Uh, in the power of the Spirit, uh, to these crowds gathered in Jerusalem, and we're told that 3,000 of them came to faith in that moment, in one sermon. So the church goes from a few dozen huddled in a room to now thousands in one day. And instantly, what we think of as the church was born on this day. And it's a a vibrant, powerful, spirit-filled force that will eventually spread across the known world, bringing down the Goliath that was paganism and radically reshaping Western culture and the known world. But one of the questions we want to contemplate in this series is how did they do it? What made them such effective witnesses? What made the early church so vibrant, so effective, so full of life? Well, there are countless things that we could point out from the passage that we just read. It says they were devoted to prayer, which we talked about last Sunday. If you missed that, I'd encourage you to listen to the podcast. They were devoted to sound biblical teaching, which we'll talk about next week. It says they were filled with the Spirit and they experienced gifts and manifestations of the Spirit. Those are subjects we'll be tackling in the following weeks after that as we get deeper into into the series. Uh, But the point I want to highlight this morning is that the early church reached the culture together, they were on the mission of God as a family. Their witness was made effective through community. In the passage we just read, it said that the early church devoted themselves to fellowship, uh, or, or community is another way of saying that, growing in relationship with one another in the presence of the Lord. They were devoted to the breaking of bread. And it says, starting in verse 44, that all the believers were together and they had everything in common. They sold their property and possessions to give to anyone who had need within the community. Every day they continued to meet together, there's that word again, in the temple courts. They broke bread together in their homes, which is a different venue, and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved." Uh, How did the early church operate? How did they reach the culture around them? Well, they did it through community, living on mission together, sharing resources, being family, eating meals together, forming a community unlike any other that had existed in human history. And we're told in the midst of that, the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This was central to reaching the lost culture around them. And it's central for us today. If we are to fulfill the Great Commission and send disciples who know how to make disciples into every neighborhood and into every nation, if we are to witness effectively in Jerusalem, in Judea, and to the ends of the earth, it means that we need to recapture to own this vision of family. Now, uh, this uh, call to biblical family uh, was radical in the first century because it required you to forsake all other families, uh, to claim the biblical family as your uh, highest allegiance, as your strongest bond. Uh, 2,000 years later, on another continent, in another context, this uh, call to biblical family is just as radical, but for totally different reasons. The call to biblical family is radical today because we don't have any strong bonds and we rarely claim any allegiance. In the first century, you were calling people out of one tight-knit community and into another tight-knit community. And that was a radical thing. There was difficulty in that transition. In today's culture, it's more likely that we are calling people out of no community at all and into something entirely new. It is no secret that we live in one of the most individualistic cultures in all of human history, in which we do not see ourselves primarily as part of a family group or a tribe or even a nation, but we see ourselves primarily as individuals. Postmodern culture says that you are a rational, autonomous individual who finds freedom in following your impulses and pleasurable experiences and who must reject all structure, all authority, and all commitments in order to lay hold of the freedom of individuality. I'm gonna read that one more time. Postmodern culture says that you are a rational, autonomous individual who finds freedom in following your impulses and pleasurable experiences and who must reject all structure, all authority, and all commitments in order to lay hold of the freedom of individuality. And each one of us is affected by this cultural narrative. You are a random individual unit you define yourself you are a free-floating atom in the universe bonded to nothing committed to nothing this is freedom throw off all commitments don't let anyone tell you what to do cut all ties don't be burdened by anyone or anything else then you insert into this world and this culture the iPhone and social, and social media, which over the last decade have shaped us in ways that we are just now beginning to understand. Uh, but uh, studies of the up-and-coming generation, which is aptly named iGen, <laughs> Uh, are uh, shocking in their conclusions. Essentially, if you were born in 95 or some people say 96 or later, you are part of the iGen generation, which has never known a time without internet and smartphones. So you were born into this world. You probably don't remember anything different and you've been powerfully shaped by it. And what we are seeing is a rapid acceleration in the individualism uh, in which people are increasingly disconnected uh, from everything and all forms of community, and hence they are living increasingly in isolation. The number of teens who get together face to face with their friends has been cut in half since the iPhone became popular. And as one teen put it, my generation lost interest in socializing. They don't have physical get-togethers, they just text together and they can just stay home. In a matter of a few short years, online interaction has rapidly been replaced, uh, has been replacing in-person relationships and real friendships are being replaced by digital ones, with the average teen summer now looking more like Netflix, social media, and texting, all without leaving their bedroom. In fact, if you chart the rise of internet use, it correlates with a decline of in-person interactions. You can actually chart them. They go in reverse correlation on a graph. They mirror one another in person no longer, now we're online. To quote another teen, "The last generation, um, which I guess is millennials or something, uh, was always always wants us to be in person, but we are not like that. We're more of a technology-based generation. And to keep the teen quotes rolling, uh, Athena says. Uh, We grew up with iPhones. We don't know how to communicate like normal people and look people in the eye and talk to them. Sometimes it makes us feel like aliens. We don't know how to talk to people anymore. And all of this is giving rise to what's called loner culture in which people eat, sleep, work, and live alone. And it's not just in the Western world. In South Korea, they're now creating loner restaurants, tables for one. You come in, you eat, you talk to no one, and you leave. In Japan, they're working to restructure government support to to meet loner culture as this uh, co- a Japanese culture, which for centuries, for millennia, existed as this sort of tight-knit, family-based, multi-generational thing, is now exploding into generations of loners. In Europe, uh, the, the fastest-growing housing trend is single-unit dwellings, housing for one. And it's now on the rise in America as well. We're increasingly, across the Western world, building housing units for people who eat, live, and and die alone. No community, no family, no kids. You are a rational, autonomous self connected to nothing. And this way of life is literally killing us. The results are beginning to emerge and studies are showing that the younger generations, uh, iGen and even millennials of which I'm a part, are slowly losing their ability to read facial expressions or hold a face-to-face conversation as people increasingly only know how to relate to one another through online platforms. Meaning that I can send you emojis and I can read and interpret the emojis you send back to me but I'm losing my ability to read a literal human face. I can text and comment for six hours a day, but I can't look someone in the eye and hold a normal conversation. I can connect with my friends through ten different apps anytime, day or night, but rates of loneliness, anxiety, depression, and suicidal ideation are through the roof. In fact, the more time you spend on social media, the more lonely you feel. Correlated, hour by hour. Which is a cruel irony. And studies have found that virtually every screen activity leads to greater feelings of loneliness, less happiness, less satisfaction, and often more sadness, anger, fear, and depression. While almost every form of in-person interaction reverses those trends. And hence with the rise of the iPhone, we've seen a massive spike in anxiety and depression which mirrors smartphone use and the teen suicide rate has doubled. I recently stumbled across this quote from a college student Melissa from Santa Barbara says it this way. She says, I had a terrible nightmare the other night. Instead of meeting for a quick cup of coffee, my friend and I spent 30 minutes texting back and forth about our day. After that, instead of going to my professor during office hours, I emailed him from home with my question. Because of this, he never got to know who I was even though he would have been a great source for a letter of recommendation if he had. Next slide. I ignored a cute guy at the bus stop asking me the time because I was busy responding to a text. And I spent far too much time on Facebook trying to catch up with my 1,000 plus friends, most of whom I rarely see, and whose meaning sadly seems to dispel even more as the sheer number of connections I've made grows. Oh wait. That wasn't a dream. In our current culture, defined by individualism, loneliness, anxiety, and digital isolation, one of the most radical countercultural things that you can do is to be in community face to face, in person, sharing real life together. With all its imperfection, with all its vulnerability, with all of its messiness, and with all of its joy, with all of its healing, with all of its power. And that's the invitation to gather on Sundays for worship, for teaching, for prayer, for communion, and to gather throughout the week in homes, sharing meals together, sharing life, sharing burdens, sharing resources, sharing joy, knowing others and being known by them in the same room. You are not a rational, autonomous self. You are not an island. You are not a small atom adrift in a meaningless universe. You were designed to commit to community and to share life with others in a deep, meaningful way. And the scriptures would say, and the studies would back up, that nothing is more humanizing and nothing is more freeing. And notice that this uh, commitment to community, it cuts both ways. Uh, To use a sports analogy, it is offense and it is defense at the same time. First, community ensures that we are not uh, colonized by the culture that we are attempting to reach, that we aren't uh, lost and wandering, uh, accepting uh, any ideology that's out there without question, and becoming uh, formed and shaped by the culture, becoming lost in our faith. Satan wants you to be an isolated individual who is lost in the world so that he can slowly warp the truth in your mind. So that he can slowly shift your accurate ideas about who God is into inaccurate ideas about who God is. He wants to lead you into a truth desert so he can pick you off there in isolation. And hence, community is, is defense. It brings us back to the truth. It insulates us uh, from the very tempting ideologies of the world that tend to seduce us and tend to confuse us in our isolation. So we come together regularly in community to recenter on the truth, to remember all over again who God is and what He's pr- promised. But community is also offense, it is the means by which God reaches touches and transforms culture. I find it absolutely remarkable that the early church we just read about is full of the Holy Spirit. They're on fire for God. They've got the entire Roman Empire to reach for Christ. But they don't just scatter to go reach it. They reach, touch, and transform the Roman Empire through community. Gathering in the temple courts, gathering in one another's homes, creating a counterculture which undermined and overturned the most powerful empire on earth. And God added to their number daily those who were being saved. As they were invited into a community unlike any other on earth. And so as we close, a very simple idea. Perhaps God wants to reach our increasingly post-Christian culture in the way that God has always reached every culture. Through biblical community that is growing in intimacy with him, grounded in the truth of scripture, walking in the power of the Spirit, praying incredible prayers, and gathering regularly in committed community. Sharing meals together, sharing life together, learning to love our neighbors together, and inviting the lost into a community unlike any other on earth. Let's pray.